I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 16. It's found on page 1,165 in your Bible. Philippians 3, beginning with verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church family, the need for recycling metal goes way back to the early 1900s. 
In fact, by 1927, there were over a million rusting, corroding automobiles, many of them the old Ford Model T, stacked up in large heaps. It was quite a problem. So in order to address this, the automobile industry invented what they called the carbecue, just like it sounds, kind of like a barbecue. It, this invention kind of worked that way. Cars were placed on a large spit. A long metal bar was put through them, and they were literally cooked at successively higher temperatures, which would then melt down and collect the valuable metals to recycle. Now, times have changed. Today, there's a much larger and, of course, more expensive machine that literally shreds up your old vehicle into baseball-sized pieces. It can chew up dozens of vehicles each hour. Now, over 75% of the metal in a junked car is recycled in this fashion. It's estimated that this already is reducing the use of landfills by 60%. That's amazing as we're conscious of this world that God has given for us to be good stewards of. But if you think about it, that could mean that your new Ford F-150 pickup that you were trying to brag about being 100% Ford tough is actually built from recycled metal from grandma's old 1970 Chevy Impala or perhaps your neighbor's Dodge Ram pickup. You never know where the metal comes from. Now, why is this important, this information? If you think about it, something that's new today becomes old tomorrow. And the opposite is also true. Today's old is often recycled to create tomorrow's new. I believe the Apostle Paul understood this concept of using the old to create new. If you recall, on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus Christ and through that encounter, he realized that everything that he, he thought was valuable in his old life was, in reality, worthless. But then he also discovered that even his worthless old life through Jesus Christ could be renewed and there could be a new life. That there could be a transformation from the old into a new creation infused with Jesus Christ. In verse 8 of our text, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is quite a statement. As we know, and Paul himself says so, his religious accomplishments were phenomenal. He actually tells us all about it in verses 4 through 8 of the passage we just read. Prior to his conversion, Paul, 
then known as Saul, had many privileges that were afforded to him because of his birth, and also many admirable achievements that he gained through his hard work. For example, he was a true Jewish believer. His parents raised him according to the Jewish custom and law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was taught from childhood the truths of the Jewish faith, that he belonged to the promised covenantal people of God. He was born into the right nation as well, the nation of Israel. It went back to the time when God changed Jacob's name to Israel to show the special relationship that God had with his descendants. And above all, Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin. According to 1 Kings 12, verse 1, the tribe of Benjamin was considered to be of greater worth and nobility because of their loyalty to Jehovah. So Paul was born with the right birth, the right national heritage, the highest nobility. They were all privileges. But he also chose a high standard of religious living. He had the right language. The Jews were scattered all over the world, but Paul kept the Hebrew tongue. He was capable of speaking in Greek, but he wanted to be loyal to his elect race, the race of Israel. He chose to become a Pharisee, very strict. Pharisee meant the separated ones, so he devoted himself to being separate and pure. Paul was exceptionally zealous. He was as committed as could be in trying to convert others to Judaism, in keeping his religion pure and strict. Finally, Paul says that he was faultless, not sinless, but faultless in being obedient to all of the laws and all of the ceremonies of the Jewish faith. He kept them to the letter of the law. So what an impressive figure within the Jewish community. Just think about it. Paul had all of the markings of someone who is great. In his book entitled, The Apostle, A Life of Paul, John Pollock writes, Though Paul from infancy could speak Greek and had a working knowledge of Latin, his family at home spoke Aramaic, which was the language of Judea, a derivative of Hebrew. They looked to Jerusalem as Islam looks to Mecca. They had the high honor of being the Israelites, the people of the promise, to whom alone the living God had revealed his glory and his plans. Paul had mastered Jewish history, the poetry of the Psalms, the majestic literature of the prophets. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the supreme teacher of that time. He learned to expound the scriptures, and as a rabbi, he was not only a preacher, but a part lawyer, prosecuting or defending those who broke the law. And in all of this, Paul outstripped his contemporaries. He had a powerful mind which could lead to a seat on the Sanhedrin, and it could make him a powerful ruler of the Jews. 
So according to the Jewish leadership, Paul was destined for greatness. He had it all. He had the knowledge, the intellect, the youthful zeal, wholehearted conviction. But then he encountered the risen and the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, on the road to Damascus, and absolutely everything changed. Everything. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Imagine that transformation. After Paul was confronted by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, all of his impressive credentials were worthless in comparison to the inner joy and the fulfillment of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. The Greek word that Paul uses, translated literally, means dung or manure. As an Iowa farm boy, I'm familiar with manure. It's not very pleasant. It's smelly. It's messy. It's an environment for a host of little critters and decomposers. But yet, as unbecoming as manure is, farmers spread it on their land as fertilizer for the next crop. So it is something that is recycled. Now this morning, we're going to look at Paul's message, and I'm going to summarize it in a three-step process. First, recycle the past. Second, prioritize the present. And third, refine the future. Recycling has to do with reduction. It's the process of taking something old, melting it down to its basic form, and then salvaging that which can be used so that something new can be made. And often it's a better product, maybe even more durable than the old one. So it's a, a circular process. Something that's valuable over time is seen as unvaluable or used. But then it's transformed into something that once again is very valuable. Now let's think about that. God created you and me as valuable human beings. In Psalm 8 it says, You made him, him meaning man or mankind, a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, and yet crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So as human beings, we're created in the image of God. We have intrinsic value and worth. That's why we are to respect all others as well. We look at the inner soul of each person and, and realize how precious that is to our Creator. Each person has unique gifts and abilities. Each person has a unique personality and creativity. 
Now we're told in the Bible that the tragedy is that sin has tainted and affected every part of our being. So due to sin, our thoughts become selfish and perverted. Our actions are motivated by greed and self-interest. Literally, apart from Jesus Christ, we can only be unholy and unrighteous. Now, this morning, I actually brought an object lesson with me. I know I'm not leading the uh, children's message, but I brought an old pair of gloves. Um, these are ones that I like because they're rubber-coated, and they're very grippy, and I use them quite often. But when I just have these gloves, they're useless. If they're just sitting on a shelf, they're of no value until I put my hands into these gloves and suddenly they're useful. Suddenly I can help someone perhaps move their belongings to another spot. I can help others and serve them. But it depends on the position of the gloves whether or not they are on my hands or whether they're just sitting on the shelf. Similarly, our value depends on our position in Jesus Christ. Even as image bearers of God, and as Paul says, sin has in many ways made us like rubbish, when we are filled with Jesus Christ, the old becomes new. So think of the implications. God recycles the old person. He uses our mind and our intellect. He salvages our sense of humor. He stirs up our emotions and our passions. Even though Paul considered his earthly accomplishment all as lost compared to knowing Christ, yet God used his knowledge, his religious zeal, to make him a great leader in the Christian faith. Looking back, I believe that God often uses our past experiences to forge and fashion who we are. He takes, for example, a painful experience, something that we look to as a liability, and he turns it into an asset. He makes it an opportunity for us to be more effective as we serve others. I know people that will talk and say, at first, I just didn't know why God brought me all of this suffering and this pain. But now, looking back, he drew me closer to himself, and he is using my experience to help others who have a similar struggle. So in many ways, the past is God's workshop. He uses the past to give us a, a foothold for the present and confidence for the future. So recycle the past. What may appear as rubbish can be used in service to God. Second, prioritize the present. He goes on to say in verse 9, 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes by observing the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul was convinced that if he trusted in Jesus Christ, if he had faith in him and sought after his righteousness and perfection, God would count it as righteousness. The priority of the believer is to know Jesus Christ. In essence, Paul says he's switching from an emphasis upon behavioral righteousness, that is, doing all of these things to try to earn God's favor, to positional righteousness, being in Christ, knowing him, and having a living relationship of faith and trust. One author writes, the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imparted and imputed to Paul. This is not the works of righteousness that are mentioned in verse 6, but the faith of righteousness that he speaks about in verse 9. The former depends on the sinner. The latter depends on the Savior. The righteousness of Jesus, the sinless and spotless Lamb of God, is what covers all of life. So when you know Jesus Christ... Everything in life is connected with him. A life given to Jesus Christ involves a longing and a desire to know him more completely. And that's what Paul is saying. Lord, I want to know you more completely. I want to develop my relationship with you more and more. As we know, Paul came to know the Lord through that encounter on the road to Damascus. It was a bolt of white lightning, and it was Jesus himself speaking to him. And as that happened, he realized that intellectual knowledge wasn't enough to, to satisfy him on the deepest level of his being. In fact, in verse 10, Paul says that after that encounter... He wanted to know Christ more completely, to increasingly draw on the power of Christ that is seen in the resurrection, even to enter into Christ's suffering and to do so personally, and finally to be conformed to his image daily. Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That should be our longing, to increasingly enter into a vital union with Jesus Christ. We prioritize the present. And that leads us to our last point, refine the future. To know Christ, to serve him, means our future is active. When Christ saved Paul, it was just the beginning. It was not, okay, everything is done. He's saved and that's it. Paul was saved in order to live for Christ, to serve him. And so are you and I. 
As you know, our society pressures us to seek after that which is comfortable, that which is easy, pleasurable, to seek after possessions. Our society emphasizes indulgence and extravagance, but such a pursuit has no lasting impact. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says again and again that all of that is a striving after the wind. That is, when it's all said and done, and ultimately at the end when we appear at the judgment seat of God, none of those things are going to make a difference. Paul compares our lives to running a race. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You don't look back when you're running a race. Likewise, our eyes need to be focused on the goal of being united with Christ, and ultimately, the finish line is entering into an eternity with our glorious Savior and Redeemer. In 1954, two runners, Roger Bannister and John Landy, both ran the mile race under four minutes each. It was an, ama an amazing race. It was quite a competition. It went down to the very end. Landy led the entire time, but as he came toward the finish line, he looked over his shoulder to find out where Bannister was. And as he looked over his shoulder, Bannister passed him on the other side and beat him to the finish line. In an interview after the race, Bannister said, I saw him glance inward over his opposite shoulder, and this tiny act held great significance, and it gave me the confidence that I needed to win the race. Now, Paul envisions believers as they're running the race of life and they're coming down the home stretch. And as they're running that race, the goal, the focus is on Jesus Christ, on knowing him and experiencing the joy of his salvation. Paul says there is no other prize that can even begin to compare with the prize of knowing Christ and entering into eternity. We should never be distracted. The finish line is before us. Reduced, reforged, refined. God takes the reusable parts and transforms and refashions us so that we can pursue running the race and the eternal prize of heaven. Amen.
Let's pray. All I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wants to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now, compared to this, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you. There is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Amen.